Here's the scene. It's 4 p.m. at the end of the first day of the self-funded search conference in Dallas a few weeks ago. It has been a full day, great content, 200 attendees, by all accounts, tons of value. But in general, people are tired by the end of the day at a conference. And there was one more agenda item, the closing talk of the day, a fireside chat between me and Kent Weaver. Kent Weaver has two decades of experience in search. He was a self-funded searcher, buying, growing, and owning to this day a major home healthcare business in Northern California. He then became a search investor in both traditional search funds and self-funded searches. He's invested in over 80 businesses that were acquired by searchers. So Kent is someone with a towering amount of experience in the world of search. Someone people look to for guidance. Someone people listen to. Case in point, Despite a long day, the audience was wrapped as Kent shared his insights in the interview you're about to hear. It was a highlight of the conference. My favorite points in the interview? When Kent talks about both the upside and downside of search. On the upside, he encourages us all to think bigger. On the downside, he makes a great point about what buying a business can do for your career, even if it doesn't work out the way you'd hoped. Now, unfortunately, the audio quality wasn't great. What you'll hear is actually a big improvement on the raw recording. It works, but you might miss a word here or there. So thanks for your understanding on that. Okay, please enjoy this fireside chat with Kent Weaver of Granite Point Partners. Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs, and on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. Listeners of Acquiring Minds know that for almost any business you acquire, its success comes down to the people and how you develop and manage them as their new leader. Thing is, in addition to management, there is also a lot of process and bureaucratic work when it comes to your new employees. Payroll, compliance, HR technology, hiring, to name but a few. These processes are crucial to get right, but at the same time distract from where you want to be putting your energy, in leadership. So, Aspen HR is an HR firm and PEO that takes this work off your plate and handles it with the care it demands. Aspen is owned and run by Mark Sinatra, himself a successful former searcher. So Aspen's own leadership understands the HR challenges that searchers have post-acquisition. The firm is offering Acquiring Minds listeners a complimentary pre-acquisition HR and PEO review for your target business. Check out AspenHR.com or contact Mark directly at Mark at AspenHR.com. This is Kent Weaver. Uh, you heard Kent's name. Uh, you've heard it multiple times today, not least on, on the last panel. Kent has a very long resume in the world of buying businesses and search. He did his own self-funded search, and he has done dozens and dozens. He's invested in dozens and dozens of deals, self-funded and GASP traditional. So uh, we're here to glean some knowledge from, from somebody who has seen, um, seen so much. Uh, so Kent, you want to do a quick, quick intro, quick hello? Yeah. Quick, quick hello, everybody. It is wonderful 
seeing this many people this interested in something this crazy. <laughs> so I, I, I will get to me in a little bit, but way back in the dinosaur age, just when I did this, there was maybe eight or nine people I could reach out to. So it's kind of fascinating to see this many people. This is a great topic. I love the energy in the rooms. I was just gonna take a quick little poll so I could, I could kind of tune this talk accordingly. Just show of hands, how many people would you say are kind of mid-career? Mid <laughs> that, that's awesome. I mean, uh, that, that's awesome. Never, never too late. Like, well, what, a, what, a great, what a great segue. How many people would you say are maybe early, early career? Okay. Then how many people have an MBA? Okay, that, that has not changed a, a lot. <laughs> and then maybe my favorite right now, how many women are thinking about doing this? I love that. You guys are pioneers. I love. Right. Yeah, that's the next great force coming into ETA, which is just wonderful to see. Okay, thank you. Fantastic. Go. Well, let's hear Ken in brief your story as a searcher, and then we're going to talk about your story as having became an investor. So first, the story, the search story. Yep. Uh, I'm going to give just a take a personal narrative. I think it's relevant. So. Um, <laughs> Real long story short, I, I grew up in a very small town, super loving parents that, that they had pretty income light, very, very humble beginnings, certainly not ghetto or anything, but, but loving household, which really set a model in my mind. So, you know, I installed carpet to pay my way through high, you know, that first girlfriend, first truck, paid my way through college. Um, and the funny thing is I kind of liked it. I liked being in control of my life. It's not that I loved physical labor, but I liked being an entrepreneur. I liked challenges. I liked working with people, um, and I, I liked, I'm not a control freak, but I liked being in control of my life. I liked the harmony of the work I did with the balance I had personally. So um, even despite that, I had a bit of an intervention from my favorite undergrad teacher, my dad, who was a wonderful person that said, hey, this is great, high five for everything you've accomplished, super high on grit, super, super low on polish and worldly skills. So, so I, did like, I did what a lot of us did. I, I came out of undergrad and, uh, oh, can you hear me okay? It, I did consulting for three years. I, I wanted to be around smart people, get mentorship, collect data points, try to get smarter. Um, and, and I knew I wanted to be a CEO. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know anything entrepreneurial. I ended up working in a leadership development program at a big Fortune 500 company, and they took a lot of chances on me. I'm forever grateful. Uh, and then I got an MBA. So, so when that run was over, <laughs> It had crystallized, and I knew, I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I had no good ideas, uh, startup ideas. I'm not technologically very advanced. So the idea of something tech, I love the entrepreneurial energy in a tech startup, but it, the wiring's different. It wasn't me. And, and I learned about the search fund model, again, a long time ago. It wasn't near as popular. And, and I, knew, I knew within like 30 seconds there was something special here. So... Again, long story short, I did a self-funded search. People thought I was nuts at the time. Um, I, I looked for a service-oriented company. I was very industry-focused. I ended up buying a healthcare company in Sacramento. And my wife and I moved out there. I, I hugged the business and ran it very, very hard for nine or 10 years. I'm super proud. I still own it to this day, but um, we raised four kids and and and, and he, I think kind of what I was solving for, you know, professionally, I felt super fulfilled, but 
I was able to remove kind of agency out of my life. You know, back to like wanting to be a good husband, be a good father, raise a family, and then be at ease professionally. I mean, this stuff's tough. You got you to gotta really bring it. And so for me to do that, have hard in my life, I, I, I kind of knew, it's not like I love risk. I have an entrepreneurial spirit, but I, I you know, I, I wanted to, I didn't, I didn't need to have another boss. You know, I, I could seek out feedback. I could craft my board the way I wanted it to. And I could build the life I wanted to build. And that's, that's what I was solving for. Um, and it ended up being a career. In what year was that? So I, I did a search a little, uh, it was around 2002. Okay. Great. And you said you ran that for about 10 years and still loaded. Said, did I get that right? Yep. Great. So we, um, we moved there. I, I was entrepreneurial CEO for nine years that the business scaled organically. Um, around the nine, 10 year mark, we had four kids. I, I would say I, I did decent at being present at home, but not fantastic. And it was a good inflection point for me to kind of step back. And I wasn't sure I wanted to be a healthcare person forever. I, I love this stuff. I was starting to see other investments come up and I was getting a little bit of FOMO. I, I, I liked what I was doing, but I wouldn't say it was an A industry. And, and I thought I'd step back, take maybe six months off and maybe go do another one. Like being a CEO was just rocket fuel for me. And what happened was, um, so we elevated a team to run it. I, I stepped back and, and I couldn't sit still. And there's nothing as fun as running and building a company, but the next best thing was investing in people that were doing it, that were maybe just the next generation of B and probably doing it better. And so I made a couple of, of investments. They happened to be traditional search fund investments. And and uh, I don't know, there was something about the, you know, I think because I had done it, the vibe was pretty special. These entrepreneurs were really, really special. Um, and you know, two or three of those became five of those, became 10 of those, and, and kind of like a drunken sailor, I couldn't stop. <laughs> you know, that became the next career path. And, uh, and my team at the healthcare company was kind of proud doing it without me. And so things were working out, and, and that became like the last 10 years of, of my journey. And so I said dozens and dozens. What is the exact number? Yep. So, uh, so I, I, you know, now, now I'm really showing my age, but... So, so I, I'm, uh, I've invested in over 200 traditional search or self-funded searchers. Um, and that, that really started to accumulate about eight years ago. It really kind of zeniths out. Um, and, and that's converted into around 80 to 85 operating companies. So like for a while, most of those were traditional. But as self-funded's matured, um, more and more of my time, capital, and reputation has been, been allocated to things that are self-funded or things that are kind of alternative to the traditional world that, that, that I know about, that I started my investing in. We all know that self-funded has grown a lot. So that's one obvious change that, we've, that you have been a party to and witnessed. What, anything else, maybe less obvious, jumps out at you as being very different today versus when you, when you got started in this space and maybe the poll that you took informs that answer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, you know, again, I, I did this because it just felt like, like it deeply resonated with me that this could be a wonderful career path. I didn't do it to be different or to be a pioneer, but there was literally really nobody doing this back then. The internet had just started. Now I sound like a grandfather. Chump. 
Yeah, you, 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 could, you couldn't email outreach out to sellers. I mean, so things moved slower. You, you could do things more in person, which is probably even a good thing. You could make phone calls, but, but the way to access people is completely different. Um, and there's a value to this many people doing it now that there's a lot of data points. There's a lot of case studies, good and bad, ways to build a company, almost all the things you go through on this journey. Somebody's written a case about it, or you can talk intelligently about it with somebody. That's all new. So I think that's fascinating. I wasn't used to that. And the speed at which things happen is a lot faster now. But, but I would say, you know, probably bigger than that's the, the type of companies that I see get funded now. I think, that, you know, it, it's, it was taboo to, a couple of things were taboo way back when. You know, to, to work remotely and run a company just wasn't heard of. To geographically search wasn't heard of. To do multi-site healthcare was really frowned upon, and, and there was no software. So that there's a lot more software deals now. There's a lot more healthcare deals. And I think there's a lot more people at, probably in this room just deciding, like, this is where I want to build my life. This is where maybe my family or, or my wife or fiance's family's from. And too many people have proven it can work. So it, it's become more accessible now and, and more supported than it was before. Having been involved in so many search searches, traditional and self-funded, um, and as the investors in these deals, the, the investor in these deals, we often talk about what it feels like, kind of the qualitative difference um, as the searcher, if you do traditional versus self-funded. Uh, being an investor in these deals, what have you observed about the difference from the perspective of the searcher? So I'm asking you to project a little bit. Yeah, so, so there, was, there was some good discussion in the last panel about this. I... I one, one kind of glaring thing that, that I would want to punctuate, I'll stay away from the economics, not, not because it's, a, it's, a, it's an ugly subject. I think some of that was talked about. Um, I think what's interesting, though, most self-funded searchers, and, and this is, you know, I bought a business that was $3 million in revenue. The first maybe 24, 36 months of doing something self-funded where you probably buy something smaller but own more of it, you know, what, what your motion looks like that first 36 months, 24 months, it's, it's different. I mean, I, I put in the company's first accounting system. I, I hired the first 25 people, like personally, the administrative person at the front desk, the people doing the scheduling in my healthcare business, the nurses, the physical therapists. Uh, I didn't want to delegate that. I mean, everything went through me and... Yeah, that's maybe, you know, the hands-on management intensive part of a smaller business where there's no infrastructure. And that's not for everybody. I mean, some of my best friends who are, are, are search funders, they didn't want to buy something with no infrastructure. They, they wanted to buy more of a platform. They didn't mind paying up for it. They didn't mind taking less equity. And they wanted a ramp from, you know, a 10 or $15 million starting point to something that looked like $100 million or more. And they wanted to get there faster, which is fine. I, uh, I was much more comfortable building something that was earlier stage and kind of ugly and, and not as mature and embryonic. And I thought it was super satisfying, the, the gritty part of doing all that and all the detail that went into it. So I, I think that's something that's personal. There's not a right or wrong. You just kind of have to know that, that what you're getting into is a little different if a business is two million of EBITDA versus 400,000. That's probably the biggest difference. Um, you know, I'd, I'd say the other differences are there's just a lot more investors now. Um, and that's not all good or bad. There's just 
you know, the, the spirit, the entrepreneurial spirit of the model, I, you know, sometimes it can feel a little bit like an asset class. And I, I kind of stay away from that. I think there's an edge missing when it, when it feels a little soft like that. And I don't think this should be something that entrepreneurs fall into because, you know, the consulting job they wanted didn't happen. Like that, that's not a good reason to do this. And I, I hear a little bit more of that than I used to way back in the day. In the debate about self-funded versus traditional, we, we touched on it last panel, the quality of investors or the, uh, the involvement that investors have in, in, in your role as operator uh, is often something that's, that's talked about and, and generalized or not. What do you, at being an investor in so many deals, do you feel like there is some generalizable difference between being an investor in, in self-funded versus traditional? Or can we put that to bed? Yeah, I, I think you know, it's always you know a little bit of caution in overgeneralizing, but 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 I'll take a cut out of it anyway. Um, you know, I, I think you know I've done, like most of my investments, point of fact, are traditional, and I love all this. And to me, this is all like the ETA world, and you have entrepreneurs coming into this that chose not to do consulting or investment banking, and their passion's strong and. You know, I think it's a personal choice that if it's framed properly, you, you just kind of opt into your path of entrepreneurship that's best for you. So uh, I come out of just kind of open-minded, super supportive. I, I think with traditional, the, there is a more established set of, you know, economic terms, platform size of a business. There's probably, you know, a, more of an established hierarchy and how your board looks. And, you know, maybe there's a little bit of, little bit of control that you that you give up to be part of that to to be part of that world and I think as an entrepreneur you have to really ask yourself the hard question am I getting back at that or more than what I gave up am I getting back enough value say um so in self-funded which is what what I had done and and, and you know so, so it's a little bit less structured it's a little bit more you know a little less bounded and uh, a little bit less controlled. And for me, that was pretty refreshing. Um, I hear comments made, and it came up in the last panel, you know, self-funded CEOs usually don't, have, don't always have boards, and, and, and that might be true, but it doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to be anyone in here's destiny. Like, I, I think you should be, like, like, initiating the feedback in the forms of nourishment you want to get, and it shouldn't really matter what model you're in. And you should be picking people that are just super value added, that you get energy from, that you think are rock stars, that you feel culturally aligned with, and and you're in a safe place to to learn and grow and be like a high impact CEO. So a couple of the first thoughts I had. I want to share an update on the Acquisition Lab. As you know, the lab is a highly vetted cohort-based accelerator and community for people serious about buying a business. After going through the lab's month-long intensive, you have ongoing access to almost daily Q&A sessions with advisors, regular live deal reviews with Walker Dibel, author of Buy Then Build, potential deal team introductions, and a very active Slack group with other searchers on the path. Well, the update is that the lab recently passed 60 businesses acquired and for well over $100 million in aggregate transaction value. Also, all members now enjoy lifetime access to the lab. Because when you buy a business, it's often just the first of many, and the lab wants to support you in every deal, not just your first. Lastly, check out my recent interview with Shane Ursum, episode 105. 
Shane acquired a business with over a million dollars in EBITDA in just six months, and he attributes a lot of his deal success to what he learned in the lab. Check out acquisitionlab.com or email the lab's director, Chelsea Wood, chelsea at buythenbuild.com. Let's talk about uh, business types so we're all more than familiar with the characteristics of an, uh, of an appealing acquisition. When you and I met last week, you talked about um, the 3 a.m. business, the business that if, if, if a searcher finds a business that has X, Y, Z at ABC, they should call you at 3 a.m. in the morning uh, to you know, ask you to put money into the deal. What, what's this 3 a.m. business all about? You don't have to call me at 3 a.m. <laughs> But if, but if it's the only way to get all of me, uh, so, so this stuff's so much fun. And, and, and what, what Will's hinting at, you know, at everybody, you know, we all get educated on this, on this space and what, what's, a good, what's a good target. And it's a combination of industry and company characteristics. And, and, and you know, there's always 15, 20, 25 things we're always looking at. But, but the sweet spot, the, the things I've never seen not work. I mean, now these are dozens of data points, and I would encourage all of you to like go for the gold. Like, don't don't miss any of these things. And it's going to sound cliche, but rarely do you see them all in one bucket. So, so one is the quality of your industry. I mean, it sounds stupid, but it'll make you look like a genius, or it'll make you look the other way. But but the quality of your industry, it should it should feel healthy. When you research it, you should see evidence of rational behavior. Pricing's rational. People throughout the value chain, not just your part of the value chain, the company you're looking at it, people make solid economic profit. You'll understand how value is added to customers. And, and these are all signs of a healthy industry. And if you, if you and maybe you use a Michael Porter analysis or some homegrown thing, we all got our own spreadsheets, but I would, I would like triple down on the health of your industry, whatever rigor you put into it. it it's, just, it's just so vital. Um, so, uh, and that industry, you're going to hope it's expanding. It doesn't have to be high growth. It doesn't have to have a $5 billion total addressable market to it. It's got to be sizable enough for you to go in and build a good business, but it'd be nice if it's expanding. And if you can find a great industry that's a little on the younger side, because when it gets super mature and saturated, it's like Game of Thrones to drive organic revenue. And yet organic revenue is like the ticket to drive outsized returns. So you want to find like, how many people know what Iron Mountain is? Like this will haunt me forever. Like Juan talked about having the perfect industry for consolidation. I never found the damn perfect industry or I would have done it his way. But if I could have found record information management in the mid-1980s, when Iron Mountain, the trucks you see all over the world, you know, that, that was a little upstate New York cave and $3 million revenue company, and that industry was not national yet. It was very regional, but you could th it was validated. It had low churn, it had high margin. Every NFL city was starting to have a leading company or two. So if you could find that, or if you could find like the cable, the cable television in the 70s, or vertically focused software, maybe in the, in the 90s or the 2000, 2010, I mean, I, I would spend time hunting for the right industry. Um, so the second thing I would add is just the quality of revenue. I mean, this is your best friend. This is how you de-risk this journey. You want super sticky customers. You know, low churn. The dollar per customer is growing every year. 
doesn't have to be perfect, but they call it NRR, net revenue retention. It's going up a little bit every year, churns less than 10% every year. So revenue quality and actually understanding like, how do we add value for customers? Why is it sticky? Keep it simple. If it's, if it's too hard to understand, it's probably not your right business. But revenue quality is so important. So now you got two. The third one is just strong unit economics. I mean, everybody talks like, like EBITDA margins, you want to try to find some 18, 20% or more. And, you know, why, is, why are unit economics and EBITDA so important? It's validating that the industry is healthy. It's validating that the, this company you're buying is in a good market position that knows how to extract economics out of a customer with strong revenue quality. And, and then maybe the big kicker is when your companies have light asset bases and they generate lots of profit, lots of cash flow, that cash is what you use to fund growth. And when you can fund organic revenue growth or M&A with cash or when you're building high EBITDA and you get debt capacity, if you can build your growth with that and never put more equity in, your MOICs and IRR shoot through the roofs and you create a lot of personal melt that way. Those are what the Hall of Fame returns look like. So you want, you want those three characteristics, sounds cliche, really hard to find them. And the last thing is you as a CEO. I mean, these are management intensive businesses. This, this is not like being an employee at Pepsi. If you learn how to be like a hungry, like feedback seeking machine that's learning, that's passionate and a servant leader, and it's all about your business. You don't have to even have to know your industry to start, but you want to be athletic. You want to pour everything into it. And if you're a learning machine that's coachable, and you put all that together, like I've never seen that not have an outsized return. But it's rare to see them all four in one. So that, that's the three o'clock in the morning one. <laughs> any, any time, I'll be ready to go. Well, Ken, let, let's expand a little bit on, um, on the individual. So, so the, the jockey. Obviously, getting a deal done at all is, is difficult, but then you got to operate and lead this, lead this business and I know from my interviews that, you know, self-doubt is a thing. Maybe some people in this room are, are, are wondering if they have the stuff to, to, to grow and uh, grow a business and, and lead a team. Any uh, ingredients beyond the obvious, uh, I guess, you know, beyond just saying leadership ability uh, that you look for in your jockeys? Yeah, there's a couple observations that, 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 that I've made over time. <laughs> well, so one... There, there's a, there was an article in Harvard Business for the Youth, and it was, it was titled something about leading indicators of great, like private equity or lower middle market CEOs. <laughs> and many of the people that were polled were people that have been around this community that, that were business builders themselves. So it's fascinating to me, but not surprising. They honed in on three things. So one was grid resilience, no shocker. And I, I would like triple, you know, quadruple pound on that, on that comment. Grid resilience. Two, the ability to build teams. Like you had like leadership, which is not really taught in MBA schools or a lot of MBA hands. That and sales are probably like the least taught things that bode well for this world. But leadership, ability to lead people, likability, super important. Way more important than people realize. And then the third thing is leadership style and it's authenticity. It's not extrovert. It's not introvert. It's not being charismatic. It's not being computational. 
It's not having high EQ. It's about being authentic. So, so it's hard. You feel like an imposter. You're, you're young or, or, or certainly new at leading people, building organizations, managing stakeholders, employees, customers, investors, lenders, all at the same time. They're never happy at the same time. And so you feel like an imposter, but the key is to just be yourself because people fleece you. They see right through it when you're not, but there's a deep respect and, and a want to be a company where, it, where that's, that's what the spirit and the vibe are. So I, so I would say that's like, that's one article worth noting. And then I would just say like, like, like I get to work with a lot of the CEOs. I get the pleasure of that. And like what, what goes through my head when, I, when I'm like evaluating them or trying to just share feedback, I think the best CEOs like are passionate, super passionate. They have energy, they have energy. I mean, they work hard. There's no way around it, they grind. They energize that to the people skills. They, they give off energy to other people and they execute. I'll call it GSD, get shit done. Their GSD quotient is high. They get shit done. They don't mess around. They don't get too caught up in strategy things. They drive. They, they, they just constantly drive progress. Another fear or doubt uh, in the room and, and among the people that I talk to uh, is, of course, just about the inherent risk in this, right? About the, the, the business that you buy and go, uh, going south. Uh, what does that look like? In the deals that you've done where things haven't gone well, but the searcher emerged with your respect, what, what did that look like? How to handle this if it doesn't go the way you want it to? Yeah. So I, I, I would say right off the bat, like, you know, this isn't for everybody. Like, I, I'm excited. I, I can romance this. My wife will say, you got to tone it down sometimes. <laughs> I'll get some of our close friends and our lawyers you know, excited about doing this. It's like, no, 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 that would not be a good, that would not be a good move for you. This can go really bad. Um, but, but I, if I share a couple stories around it, dude, so, um, like it, it can go bad. Uh, you know, the, there's one entrepreneur, like I'll be classy, the, the name doesn't matter, but they, they bought a multi-site healthcare people intensive business a, a lot like mine a long time ago. Um, and, you know, like, like, they came into a people tense of business with kind of an emperor mentality. Like, like it, 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 it's, it, it's my way that goes. I'm here to build an empire. It wasn't servant leadership. The tone was all wrong. And there's, that's one way to turn off people that, that have worked hard in a company that know an industry. So he lost his head clinician. Then he lost his head three salespeople and they were all four stairs. And, and that business never recovered. That, that's a $12 million business that went down to $3 million of revenue within 24 months. And then just couldn't, it just couldn't fund cash flow. And the investors lost faith. The employees almost had a new need. It was about ready to go bankrupt. And we ended up selling it to a vulture, you know, somebody very vulture-like in the industry. And it was really all about the approach toward people. So, so that, that's super ugly. And that person probably shouldn't be in this and shouldn't be doing what you all want to do. Then in contrast to that, there's a, like a really well-known, um, you know, kind of quasi self-funded searcher that, that went to an MBA school, bought an industry where the industry became obsolete in around their third year. I mean, the industry just kind of shit on this business. They were doing everything. They were like, a, they were like the, 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 the buggy whip the last buggy with manufacturing. 
and and it just it just went sideways and 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 he handled himself with such class and such grit. The business went to zero. They, they, they put it down gracefully, but brutal to go through. Brutal. And um, he took time off, spent some time with his young kid, his family, got his life back together, came back and did it again. And 11 of the 12 investors all, back, all backed him the next go around. And he, he bought a company for about 20 million and sold it to private equity for over 300. So it worked, I mean, so he had earned it the hard way. But really like, like investors really just wanna know you're honest, you're hard character and you work hard. That's all you're really being judged by. Not, none of this all was perfect. So there, there's an example when it, when it works right. I, I love what Ari said this morning, first panel where he said, when I, when I went to my friends and family about raising capital, I said, this doesn't always go the way we want, but I promise you it won't go bad because of my lack of work ethic, my lack of character, yeah. fraud, any of the, the bad reasons, that won't happen. But I can't control the universe, so that's, that's, that's the other But There's one more bad outcome I should mention. This is probably the worst of all outcomes. So there was a, there was an, a very talented entrepreneur that, that was willing to work his butt off that uh, he had an elite MBA and he had worked at General Electric in some pretty hardcore like operational roles. So this was a profile pretty prime to build a company. He, he bought a company that sells like, uh, you know, Bibles and things to churches. So <laughs> stable industry, had, doesn't grow a lot, but pretty darn stable. That channel distribution looks super sticky for years and years. He, he, uh, he, he buys this company and they have a horrible audit with uh, like workforce safety in the first year. Um, they have a fire without all the proper insurance. And, and for the first time in 20 years, the revenue dips pretty hard and, and foreign competition hurts pricing and economics. So this, so this is getting pretty ugly. And so he does the high character thing. He puts everything in, puts relationships at home, like it, it, at risk and pours everything in for like three or four years. And it just did turn around. And, and at that point, and I get, I get super frustrated even thinking about this, like, like the, the best kind of people around you, the investors that care about you will at that point say like, this just is a good one. Like you're, you're in your prime building, business building years, you're, you're you know, like, Let's just sell this thing. It didn't work. Let's go do another one. And instead, they, they made him feel guilty. He stuck around till year seven. That's seven years in a yucky business. So I guess my, my punchline would be, you know, like get in a good situation. Get into an A, A minus, or a B plus. Doesn't have to be perfect. But that, that was a C situation. So again, back to industry and those characteristics. Because there's nothing worse than being in a yucky business and, and losing your self-esteem and getting kind of lost. And, and you're not really learning. You're not learning how to leave people with something that like kind of sideways. And then be careful who you're around. Like that, that, like, yeah, that, that was just, that, that, that's kind of infuriating that, that you suck around that business too much. And Ken, if you find yourself in that situation and you're trying to do the right thing and you're trying to do right by your investors, I'm hearing you say that there is still a moment where you can tell yourself, I'm holding on too tightly. I'm holding on too long. Is there a way of knowing that if, if you're unfortunate enough to have investors who want you to just die with this business? 
first thing I'd say, like, just, just PP. You know, your, your first big entrepreneurial CEO decision before you buy anything, like, you know, what kind of people do you want in your ecosystem? It doesn't matter if you're self-funded or traditional or whatever. Like, she, like really seek out, like, the ultimate de-riskers, the people around you and your work ethic. So seek them out to talk to, no, nobody tells it straight more than your fellow entrepreneurs. Ask around, like, like, what are these people, how do they behave in good and bad times? Like, what kind of nourishment do I get? How do they culturally vibe? But, but get, get people around you that, you know, you're energized by, but also kind of know what they're doing. You know, it's okay to, to, to and, and then, you know, be a learning machine, seek feedback. But want, want to get really, really good at this. And, and then, like, no matter what anybody tells you, you're the center of gladly here. Like nobody's like nobody's gonna work as hard or feel the pressure like you, the entrepreneur, not the investor, not a board member, nobody. See, so you, you gotta you gotta find your own voice and and steal up at some point. It's a tough journey, but you feel it's wonderful too. But just know what's good for yourself. I there's an entrepreneur I'm thinking about maybe five years ago. They they called. It's a Saturday. Their voice is shaky. I'm like, how bad is? And it's pretty bad. Okay, well, well, bad to me is you're about ready to get a divorce. Or you're, you're about ready to have mental health issues. This isn't worrying. It's like, like, if you're not digesting food for a month straight, we probably should talk about it. Like, that's, that's just, in this journey is not worth it then. So, like, have, have your boundaries, know yourself, have your own voice. Now, switching back to the happy. Uh, so, so, tell us some of the businesses that you're involved in now in your portfolio that, you're, that jazz you up that you're really excited about. Yep. So, so it's dawned on me, even here, there's been maybe 15 short conversations with, with some of you, which, are, which is great. It's super energizing. And maybe a little bit more than, than I'm hearing a lot of like, yeah, I want to buy a $400,000 EBITDA business, personally guaranteed my loan, which, which no, no problem, like all good. But, but I'm not sure, like if you're willing to put the work in and do this, I'm not sure, like, there's a full picture of what the mountaintop could look like. So I'm not trying to f fill you with false sunshine here, but this can go really, really well. Like, like, like turning 400,000 of EBITDA into 2.2 million in six years is something to be very proud of. But you can leave big here, too, if you put the work in. So there, there's, when I think of some of the ones it, it, that, that just exploded, um, you know, that there is a self-funded search that's over a billion dollars of that price value now. 32 acquisitions later over nine years. They, they started with, with, a, with, a, with a quiet little $6 million revenue business. So I'm not saying that that has to be what success looks like, but it's okay to leave that option open. I think uh, the people that are the catalyst for putting this together, I, I would ask Rob and Jordan everything you can about about what they're doing right now, because they're both crushing it. They might be too humble to tell you, but it's, it, it's, 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 going, it's going pretty well, <laughs> right? Um, you know, you, you got to see Mark Anderig up here, and he did a traditional search, but now, now through Newberry Franklin, he's launching super compounding platforms in different industries, and, and I'd want to bet the over on any one of those. And if you put them together, that's, that's a pretty big mountaintop. So there's a lot of wonderful things happening. There's a, a recent MBA, um, her name's Diana, that, that I'm closely involved with. She wanted, she wanted to self-fund. She, she bought a, I, I happened upon 
a homeowner association business that I, I really liked. I, I'm not going to run anything anymore. My wife will absolutely kill me. But I, I was super excited to see her succeed. So I, I, I referred her over the deal. She launched a consolidation platform in homeowner association. But she was also super pumped up about medical aesthetics. So she's launched two platforms at the same time or within the same year of each other, which is a little bit out there. But we, when, when, we, when we break down how to drive value creation in, in a measured, thoughtful, smart way, there's answers to that. So that's the fun of this. You can be entrepreneurial. You know, it, I, I'm not sure it needs to be super bounded. So there, there's a couple on success stories. I love that point, Ken, because... Um What's often said about this opportunity is that, you know, it's a pretty reliable way to get to seven figures of, of net worth and even eight figures of net worth. Um, but probably you want to go to Silicon Valley if you want to be cut, you know, if you want to, you know, build a unicorn, build a billion dollar business. And so it's nice to, whether or not that actually does happen very often, to just like take the artificial cap off, off of your, the way we think about it. Well, this isn't me being Pollyannish. I don't think anybody should do this because they want to make money. I mean, it's just you, you, you should like be pumped up about building a business and all the things that go into it. But I was very aware of the money I was going to make. I did it because I loved it, but I wasn't so holier than thou. I wasn't aware and it. I, I wanted to, because money converts into things in life and freedoms. And I was aware of that too. So I, I won't deny that. That would be false. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. I love that. Um, we're bumping up on time. So let, let me ask you one last question here, Ken. So as you told us, you did your self-funded search and then you kind of fell into investing and then that became kind of phase two of, of this journey for you of this part of your career. Um, one of the things you'd said to me though, is one of the benefits of doing a search is that not necessarily that you become an investor, but that you have a lot of options. So this can crack open your career in really interesting ways. Can, can you, um, take people into the future beyond just getting this deal done, but what, what their life might look like five and 10 years hits. Yeah, this, this question comes up a lot. It's part of the risk assessment. It, it, if I go down this path, whether I'm earlier career, mid-career, you know, what's the consequences if it doesn't work? Which I think is a very like rational question. And, and I would say my pattern recognition, and I could say with very high confidence, like this is an enhancer, no matter how it works out. So for me, I ran a business. It, it, it did pretty well. It wasn't like on the front page of a Wall Street Journal. but um, And because I had done that, my option set of what I could have done next like grew pretty exponentially. If I'd wanted to go to private equity, that would have been easy. I, I just didn't want to do that. If I'd run into run another one, I think I would have been even better suited to do it and it would have got funded pretty easily. Um, I think I had credibility as an investor and that's the path I ended up going down. But I also think um, even, even putting my story aside, like the people that had done this, you know, and decided it's just not what I want to do going forward. I've seen them going to work in high tech, like work for larger Fortune 500 companies. And, and the feedback I'll hear over and over again is that th this stint the, the entrepreneurship of it and what they learned and, and how they were able to communicate it in an interview, like usually is like very well received. People really respect that you gave something this hard a try. So op optionality expands if you go and really try to do it right, which is pretty nice downside. 
fantastic message for us to close our conversation on. Can we do just a few questions? I know we're buffing up against time. We're standing in the way of you and beers right now. I get it. I'll talk fast. I can ask the audience if, if I, if I can permit some questions. Do we, do we have, uh, anybody want to get a question here to Kent before we go have drinks? We didn't capture the audio of the questions from the audience. So I'm going to interject with the questions here, then flip back to Kent answering them. These won't be the questions verbatim, but approximations. The first question was, which specific industries or niches do you see as ripe for roll-up or consolidation today? I don't have a, on a one to 10, I don't have a nine or a 10 to give you. And some, every now and then I do, but I don't. Um, I think super niche, vertically focused software was kind of fun. And, and I, I would rule it out, but, but everybody, that's not a secret. Everybody wants to find it. And if you access that through brokers, it is like Game of Thrones. Like the multiples are going up. It's super hard. I'd also say, you know, I like measured consolidations or buildups, not when they're scotch taped together. And I brought up record information management. Like what, what, that's an analog for something now. Like, like I wish I could do like waste management pickup at doctor offices, but this company called StereoCycle did it 30 years ago or like, what's the new consolidation? What industry's younger? I'm not, I'm not, I, if, if I, if I get, if I had a twin or, or maybe I'll get an analyst and just say, go, go for the next 12 months and figure out what, what's ripe for consolidation. I mean, gate maintenance for self-storage companies is kind of interesting right now. Like that, that maybe that's a little, that, that, that's kind of interesting. Medical aesthetics and home care in the, in the healthcare world was pretty interesting maybe up to four years ago, but I think it's getting a little late in the game. So like, I'm always spinning on that stuff, but I, I don't have, I'm not sure I have the one right now. And then I'm not sure I'd even tell you if I did. <laughs> <laughs> the second question was, what are some more characteristics to search for and identify an industry ripe for consolidation? So the question's about maybe where could I, where could I buy and build the next consolidation? And again, I, th I think it would start with, 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 my, with my 3 a.m. formula. Like industry characteristics, I, I think you want an addressable market that's don't have to have a perfect answer, but it's at least a hundred million, but probably not more than a billion because then you have all kinds of private equity competition and you want something earlier stage, like it's validated, but, but there's tons of runway left. I mean, you could, you could point to targets in, in your research and, and know that if you do two or three acquisitions, you're not done. Like, like there, there's no more to go. And then I think it, it'd be good, like an ideal consolidation in the, like a lot of value is created by the programmatic way that you buy and build companies and integrate them right. And, and for every 10 companies in the consolidation you buy, you want 10, you want your hit rate to be high. And then you want to use leverage. Like these, these, are how, these are how consolidations make money. But on top of it, if you can have organic growth in the companies you buy on top of all that, like that, that's the best kind of consolidations. But again, it's back to industry. Can you find an industry that's not so overdone? You're competing with a strategic buyer that has an M&A team that's bidding up prices, uh, but it's not so new. You're not sure if there's enough targets to buy. And it's just research. The third question was, with potentially choppy economic waters ahead, how to shield your organization? This might be a little, little when you're an entrepreneur and you're feeling so much pressure, 
you know, there's a little bit of mental gymnastics you do to shield yourself. So there might be a little bit, a bit of that in this response, but I, I, I never try to economically forecast. You know, I think there's two kinds of economic forecasters, those who know they can't do it and those that think they can, but really can't. So I, 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 never, I never try to, I, I just, I think you always want to be ready. If you're in healthcare, you're going to get bad reimbursement rates because they change every year. Or, or in another industry, you might have a bad cycle or a competitor might, might open up you know, five miles down the street. So like the, the best ways to de-risk or shield are like try to be super efficient with the equity you bring into your company. Try to be surp surgical and smart about debt. Don't get, don't, like run tight. Keep hiring the best team. Keep like grinding and running as productive a business as you can. Just, just be, be, be resilient, organizationally resilient, ready as best you can all the time. Just be, be prepared to absorb shocks. Um, and, and, and best team wins. Like that, that might be the place I would start. But I, I you know, I, I never coiled up in a fetal position when, when, when the bad economic thing was coming up. We just gritted, we just gritted hard. We got ready to, got ready to battle. The fourth and final question came from Robert Graham at the back of the room. Robert was a host of the conference and is a staunch vocal proponent of self-funded search. So naturally, he asked the following. In your portfolio, Kent, which are doing better in aggregate, your self-funded search investments or your traditional search fund investments? I, I would say th things, things go in cycles. So, so you know, I, I'm going to ever forever have a lot of love for traditional like, and, and some of the wins have been super big and some of the people I got to work for were just like so memorable. I think, I think traditional is a little less sharp. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of investors. There's a lot of new searchers. I think it's getting, it's getting bigger and I'm, I'm not sure, I'm not sure the spirit of it is exactly the same and, and there could be a little bit of a danger in that. And then I, I think with self-funded or things that are alternative, I think there's, like a real entrepreneurial edge in general. Like there's a spirit of it and, and an entrepreneurial edge and a, you know, like, like, a, like a strength. And I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be controlled. I, I want to do it my own way. I, I'm, and I, I, think, I think that kind of serves, there's probably something healthy about that. Um, and, I, and I guess like point of fact, like the, the last three years for me, like I'm going to say something that has no disrespect to anything, but, just point of fact that the, 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 some of the alternative, the, the, the newer, fresher forms of ETA have had like fantastic returns, like, like, like as good of returns as I've ever had in my life as an investor. So I'm, I'm paying attention and it, with, you know, reputation, my time and, and how I deploy my money more and more it's gone into, to things that I think are alternative like this. That's about the best I'll give you. <laughs> I think we'll, we'll cut it there. We're right at 501. People are thirsty. That was phenomenal. Thank you.